The following audio is from Summit Church. For more information on Summit Church, visit www.summitonline.tv. Here's what we're doing. We are taking a one-week break from the book of Titus because I want to set a course for our summer. We came out of 21 days of prayer leading up to Easter, and we just were desiring and wanting more of God. And I think one of the ways that we can do that is to examine our personal worship and get away from this idea that when we, we only worship when we come here and we sit in this room because God is everywhere. And if we want more of him, then one of the ways that's going to happen is if we acknowledge that presence. And if we live our lives in a way that we say, hey, God is here and he's with us and I, and I can't help but be moved by that. And so we're gonna be in John chapter four. I'm gonna do most of the chapter today. I will tell you this, when we went through the book of John as a church, if you were here on April the 12th, 2016, if you were here on April the 12th, 2016, you've heard much of the teaching from the passage because the passage didn't change in three years. Okay, the Bible still says what it says and, and then the truth is still the truth. But the takeaway at the end, I'm, I'm gonna go a different direction, but it's just such a perfect passage to kind of set the tone for the summer. So if you're reading through going, I've heard this somewhere. It was here on April 12th, 2016. But if you weren't, then this is gonna be all fresh and new. Um, let's pray real quick and we'll jump in. Uh, Father, thank you for just the way that you provide and the way that you work through your church. And I thank you for everyone who scrambled this morning to make this possible. May we not miss it then. May we not miss what you're doing and what you're wanting to do today. And if it was Satan or whatever that, that tried to stop it, Lord, it didn't work. And, and so we just rejoice in you for that. Uh, give us your grace today to hear your word and apply it. It's in your name we pray, amen. John chapter four, let's start with the first four verses. <clears throat> now Jesus had learned that the Pharisees uh, had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. That's John the Baptist. Although, in fact, he was not, Jesus was not the one who baptized, but it was his disciples, so they just clear that up. Verse three, so he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. So Judea's become too hot for him. John the Baptist is actually in prison. The Pharisees are coming after Jesus. They don't like how much notoriety he's getting. And so normally, I would push back on that, going like, this is a good thing. He goes, let's, let's head out to Galilee. Let's go where the Pharisees have much less pull. And so in verse four, now he had to go through Samaria. Jews do not go through Samaria. They go around because they believe that even just getting dirt on your sandals from Samaria that could contaminate you, make you impure, uh, unable to worship God. So they usually went around, but Jesus knows that's not true. So he just traipses right through Samaria because he has a divine appointment with a woman at a well. Verses five through nine. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar. Near the plot of ground, Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. It's actually still there to this day. If you go to the promised land, you can go see this well. Um, and Jesus, tired as he was from his journey, a 30-mile journey from Judea to um, Galilee, so they've been traveling for at least two days probably, tired as he was from his journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. People don't go to the well at noon. They go to the well in the morning and the evening because it's cooler. So he sat down there at noon thinking it would be just him. And all of a sudden, a Samaritan woman came to draw water. Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food because they were apparently hungry. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. It is a racial tension. It has biblical ramifications. 
It's not good, and Jesus could care less. But he is breaking down these social barriers. This woman's like, I'm a Samaritan and a woman. You're a Jew and a man. We don't talk. But Jesus has no problem addressing her. Now, we hear him go, give me a drink. That's not at all what it is. More than likely, he was saying, can I borrow your pitcher? Can, can I use your pitcher to draw from the well? I, I don't have one. But it, either way, Jews would have never, ever drank out of a cup or a pitcher that a Samaritan had. So there's gonna be something happen here and we need to understand that context because to us it really doesn't make a lot of sense. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God, she just says, why are you talking to me? And Jesus goes on what appears to be a tangent here, but it's, it's not at all. But if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Yeah, follow the conversation thread here, right? Stranger at the well at noon, breaking down social norms, she points out that you're not supposed to do that, and he says, if you'd asked me for water, I'd have given you living water. At this point, you're thinking nutso, right? Like, you're thinking, this guy is not in his right mind. He asked me for a drink, but now he wants me to ask him for a drink. And if, he, if I had asked him for a drink and knew the gift of God, this woman is a worshiper of God. If I knew the gift of God and who it was I was talking to, how could I know that we just met, but you would have given me living water. This is interesting. But Jesus is claiming to be the source of living water. In the Old Testament, this idea of living water meant vibrant, divine, fresh, moving water. So she may have had some context for what he was referring to, but more than likely not. Verses 11 and 12, sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? You ain't getting it out of here. Do you know of another well? Is, is there a source that I'm not familiar with? Because if you know, I, I'll be more than happy to follow you there. But then she goes, you know, and honestly, are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well? And he drank from it himself as did also his sons and his livestock. She's really sharp. Instead of addressing this kind of crazy man in the way I probably would have, which is have a good day, she wants to press in. So do you, you think you're better than Jacob? Because I don't know if you know your history, but he's a stud. He, he, I mean, he dug this well himself. He bored down through the rock and the dirt and, and hit a fresh spring out here in the middle of the desert. He's, he's kind of the man. If, if you think that you're better than him, then I'm, I guess I'll maybe keep listening. Jesus answered and Verses 13 and 14, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. True. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. This is some special water. Never thirst again, it will well up within you to become eternal life. I would, I would be intrigued now and want to find this well or this source, but he's saying he is the source. So she's hooked, I think, at this point. And Jesus is going to clarify in verse 15, or I'm sorry, the woman in verse 15 will say, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. She gets it about 25%, but she heard the most important part. 
If I can have a drink of this water and never have to come get more water, I'll take it. I'm in. Give me this water. I don't want to make this journey ever again. From Jesus' response in verse 16, I mean, I'm taking some liberty here. But I think the woman was a little bit mocking Jesus. So can you kind of hear it in the tone? Well, then, sir, I'll take it. I'll take you. I'll take your water because I don't want to come here anymore. So if, I, I'm in. I'm in. I've got a cup right now. Let's do this. Jesus proves that he knows what he's talking about, verses 16 through 18. He told her, go call your husband and come back. There's a couple things might be happening here. She's like, oh, finally, here's the chauvinist side. He doesn't want to deal with the woman anymore. Wants to give the water to the man. Go, go get your husband. It's probably not at all what's happening. I think Jesus is proving that he is the gift of God, that he is the living water, and he's gonna do so by telling this woman something that he never should have been able to know. Go call your husband and have him come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. (laughs) Yes, thank you. The fact is you've had five husbands. And the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. How in the world did this stranger Jew from Judea know that I've been married five times and the guy I'm living with now is not my husband? How would he have ever known that? I think what Jesus is demonstrating is that sometimes... Even with the best offer, the best offer that God can give us, we need the proof to be in the pudding, right? Like, all right, I'm intrigued, but at this point, I'm not willing to surrender. At this point, I'm not really willing to bite. So you're going to need to prove it. In a few years, Jesus will do so for all of us. He does not ask us to just blindly follow him. He said four times in his ministry, I'm going to die because I'm going to be crucified. They're going to bury me, and three days later, I'm going to come back to life. He said that four times in his ministry so that everyone would hear it. And then the darndest thing happened. He did it. And if anyone were to come in today and to do that, to, to prove over three years, to say something four times, and then to actually conquer death, we should probably listen to that person. And so that's what Jesus has done for us. For this woman, because the resurrection hasn't happened yet, he just has to pull a cool Jedi mind trick and know that you've been married a bunch, the guy you're with now is not your husband, verses 19 and 20. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. You clearly speak on behalf of God. You know something you should have never known. And then she goes off script, and I love it. She's like, I'm talking to someone that knows God, apparently. I've got a theological question that I need you to answer. So the living water's off the table for a moment. Now, a bigger question. She says, our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, Mount Gerizim. But you Jews, you claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Who's right? If if you were listening from behind a tree to this conversation, you would think two crazy people are having it, right? 
can I have a drink? Don't have anything. You want some living water? Sure, I'll take it. You've been married a bunch. Uh, what mountain do I worship on? This is, these are people trying to, they're, they're trying to have a conversation, but she asks a great question. The Samaritan people had a temple on Mount Gerizim until 127 BC when a Jew actually destroyed it. So Samaritan history, they worshiped on this mountain. They did so because according to their history, it was on this mountain that God talked to Abraham, that Abraham offered up Isaac. It was the place of Jacob's well. That's, we got that for sure. Joseph's bones were buried there. Joshua's final address was given there. It's supposedly the landing place of the ark. Uh, Noah's altar was built there. And according to the Samaritans, paradise is found on its summit. They also throw in that the dust that Adam was formed from came from its rocks. Some of that you can substantiate, some of it you can't, but they think that's a holy place. And the Jews, they have their holy city. Jerusalem. The temple's there. The presence of God's there. She just wants to know, which one do I go to? I live here, but if, if I, I want to worship God, which one do I go to? 30 miles south? Do I go to this one? You just tell me which one. Jesus says both places are wrong. Jesus says, actually, they're both wrong because I'm gonna usher in a new way of thinking. I'm gonna bring in a new covenant, a new era. Jeremiah 31, verse 33 talked about this, prophesied this. It says, this is the covenant I will make with my people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and I'll write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. We will live in covenantal relationship. I'm gonna deal with hearts not mountains and temples. Verses 21 through 24. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. Now, I don't have time to unpack that, but that's, that's a harsh one. Yet a time is coming and has now come. Jesus is the embodiment of this new covenant. When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. You don't know who you worship, but we as the Jews do, we know God. You gotta know the object of your worship. Do you have to know all about him? No, but you, you have to have a direction. You have to have an object. You need to know the God that you worship. But you also need to realize that that worship involves spirit. Why? Because God is spirit. And so where do we take this today? Where, where do we go with this message? I think it's in one very simple but hopefully eye-opening direction. You don't come to this place to worship God. You can worship God in this place. And I hope you do. But since God is spirit and his presence is everywhere, if you know this God and seek to worship him with your life, then you're going to worship him in spirit all the time. 
As his Holy Spirit indwells you and, and as you are sensitive to and obedient to the Holy Spirit, your life will become worship. This idea of a lifestyle of worship that you wake up in the morning, you put on your britches, and you say, God, what are we gonna do today? And as he leads you through his Holy Spirit, your life becomes worship. Your sleep becomes worship. Your work becomes worship. Your parenting becomes worship. Your worship is worship. And I don't know that I'm necessarily saying anything new to most of you. But once again, I wanna set a course for us. If we as a church are going to pursue God in a greater way, if we're going to want more of him, then we need to take on this mindset, this truth that God is everywhere. He's bigger than we could ever imagine. He's more precious than anything this earth has to offer. He has bridged the gap between us and him through the giving of his son, the most dramatic display of love this world has ever seen. And what he asks us then to do is acknowledge that the spirit that lives in us as followers of Jesus connects to his spirit and our life becomes worship. He wants us to acknowledge that and I think I need to hear this more than anyone because I can get really comfortable doing a lot of things for God. I get up, come to work, raise a family, but I can do all those things the exact same way, and in one instance it's not worship, and in another it is. And that is simply the acknowledgement of the presence of God. You don't gotta come here to do it. So as the band comes back up, here's all I wanna say. In conclusion, when we do come here, and I hope you do, I, I think coming to church is very important, and when we do respond to the word of God at the end of each service, when we take communion, when we come up to pray, I want you to have freedom. If you've been here very long, you've heard me say this. I don't care what posture you're in. I don't care how well you sing or if you don't sing at all. And I don't believe that God really does either as long as you're being obedient to him. As long as your heartfelt response to him in this moment is free from fear of what the person next to you may think or do or not be doing. As long as your heartfelt response to him when, when you hear that there's people who wanna pray that if you're weighted down with burdens and his spirit's telling you that God will take this and carry that burden for you so that he will get the glory that you actually move and respond and pray. I, I, don't, I don't see freedom most Sundays. And that bothers me, it, wor it worries me. It doesn't bother me, it worries me. Because I want you to have freedom in this place. To respond to God who is here and out there and everywhere, I want you to have freedom to respond to him, to worship him, to adore him, to love him. I want you to have that freedom, church. 
So today, will you freely worship him? Whatever that looks like. Taking communion, praying on your knees, on your feet, sitting down loudly, quietly, just freely. Because he's here and he's worth it. Father, thank you for allowing us to experience your presence. May we now respond to you, to your love, to your son Jesus, in faith, in truth, in spirit, for those are the kind of worshipers that the Father delights in, that the Father seeks. So I pray that today you would delight in us as we worship you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.